Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a history of preaching some weird sermons on Mother's Day. I think it was last year or two years ago. We were in the question and answer uh, sermon series and I preached on warfare. Because <laughs> motherhood is a lot like warfare. Um, and you may feel this is a strange topic to speak on today, but um, I think it's very pertinent. And uh, it comes from Ecclesiastes. We've been in a book study on Ecclesiastes. And I've got to be honest, this is becoming my favorite book in Scripture. Um, I've never spent much time studying it like I have the last few weeks. And it is just awesome. Um, Just makes it impossible to be an atheist, in my opinion. Uh, When you read the book Ecclesiastes and you see uh, the arguments put forth by Kohelet, the professor, the teacher. And uh, so today uh, we find ourselves in uh, chapter 7. Before we read, though, um, I wanted to give an uplifting message for Mother's Day. And I I think I can twist it so that it will be. (laughs) But if you've read Ecclesiastes, you know it's not a very uplifting book. What does that say about me if it's my favorite book of the Bible? Um, You know that it is a difficult book. You know that it hits some difficult things. And quite honestly, Mother's Day in our culture is becoming a more and more difficult holiday. Uh, It's becoming more and more difficult because as we age, our moms age, and we see them struggle and we see them uh, change with age, and they don't like it, and sometimes we don't like it. And we also see our moms pass. We see them die. And none of us like that. And that is painful and difficult. And some of you have recently lost your mother. And Mother's Day, this Mother's Day, the first one without her is particularly difficult. And quite honestly, uh, since it's so recent, every day has been pretty difficult lately. And in our culture, because there's more brokenness and broken homes and and there's more fracturing of relationships and and the families are more broken than ever before, uh, there are hurt feelings more and more between uh, moms and kids. And so that's touched my life uh, in ways that has been difficult. And so Mother's Day, uh, back in the old days, right, Uh, And by the way, we usually remember the old days better than they actually were. Uh, Back in the old days, all moms were saints and everything was great. And everybody just, you know, celebrated and honored mom. But today, more and more folks have a little bit of struggle there sometimes. And so I want to speak into that a little bit. And and quite honestly, uh, infertility is a growing issue in our culture. And there are lots of women that struggle to have children. Marnie and I struggled for five years before we were able to have Sam. And then all of a sudden we had two others. And uh, <laughs> when God decided that it was time, it was time. But his name is Samuel because we asked and God provided him. And his name means God hears. And so we went down that path for a while. And there are many women who, who struggle become moms who want to be. 
And so with all that in mind, I wish to be sensitive uh, to moms and to moms who want to be moms, right? And so as we look at this passage, one of the things that crosses my mind is that most moms want their kids to grow up to be good kids. Most moms want their kids to grow up and and to be uh, great kids, great people. And they spend an awful lot of their time correcting and teaching and disciplining their children. In fact, in our culture, one of the most successful Sundays, best attended Sundays, more and more, is Mother's Day. Father's Day is one of the worst ones because dads just want to go out to the mountains or hiking or shooting or riding ATVs or whatever it is dads do. But moms... And I think it's because of this desire for their kids to turn out okay, want everybody in church. (laughs) And and so Mother's Day is a time where we honor moms and and moms want to come to church. That's how they want to spend their morning. That's why they want their kids here. Because they're worried about their kids being on the right path. Dads, I guess, don't care about that so much. Of course, we can only think about one thing at a time. (laughs) That's a blessing. And a curse. The moms want their kids to turn out fine. Not that dads don't, but... So, how do we do that? How do we help our kids turn out fine? And more than that, if we don't have kids, or, or our kids have moved out and we hope they're okay, uh, or, or we're just who we are, how do we turn out okay? How, how, do, we, how do we become the people we want to become? How do we live lives that are meaningful and purposeful and have, have impact? How, how do we live lives that, that there's wisdom in them? You know, Milton Bradley, uh, before he was a company, was a guy. Um, and uh, in 1860, at the age of 23, he invented a game called the checkered game of life. Uh, you know that game today as simply life. Um, but when he invented this game, it was very different age, a very different time, and it was actually America's first successful parlor game. And he took a, a board that looked much like a checkerboard, and it was made up of red and ivory squares, and on the ivory squares was written things like uh, infancy and happy old age up in one corner, and infancy was down in another corner. And uh, one other corner was ruin. <laughs> and the, the goal of the game was, was to move from infancy to happy old age. And the way you got there was by, by practicing certain virtues or, or, or va- values and avoiding certain vices that would lead to ruin. And so there was actually a moral of, uh, to the game. Most games back then had a little moral built in. And so... Uh, some of the some of the, the things that led to uh, good things. In fact, he called these the good patches of life were honesty and bravery and success. And so, if you landed on those, you kept moving up towards happy old age. Um, and then there were some rough patches in life that he called them. And and the rough patches in life were poverty, idleness, disgrace, suicide, ruin, and death's dark door. If you landed on those, you, you went the other direction in the game. 
1960, Milton Bradley, the company, uh, came out with a 100-year anniversary of the game of life. That's the one you and I have played. And that's the one where you ride around in a plastic station wagon, and the goal of life is to earn money and spend it on furniture and make other blue or pink little plastic babies. And the goal of life in this game is to retire and have lots of money. And the worst thing that happens in this game, the square that is the least favorite, at least in the 1960 version, was the dreaded jury duty box. If you landed on jury duty, you lost the turn. That was one of life's rough patches. That was the roughest patch on the game of life in the 1960s version. Isn't it weird how our games reflect our values? Reflect our culture? And all of a sudden, the game of life, instead of being a game that teaches values or or vices and staying away from vices and and practicing virtues, it became a a game about consumerism. And just that game is such an interesting thing that we take to heart. And when I play the game of life, um, that game of life, not my game of life, but you know what I'm saying. When I play the game of life, I always try to make the most money. In my life, if that's the object, I'm not doing so well. And it begs the question, what gives life purpose and meaning? Because for many people, they've bought into the game of life as being the purpose of life. He who dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? What are you winning? Why is that worth winning? Remember what Kohelet, the professor, the teacher in Ecclesiastes said, uh, when you die and you have all this stuff, you get to leave it to others and who knows if they'll use it wisely or not. So what did you win? And so uh, today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that I think helps us answer the question, how do we live wise lives? How do we live a life of meaning and purpose? How do we live a life that will actually echo forward into the world? Not just so that when we die, we're forgotten or we're soon forgotten. But that our life has purpose and meaning and value and wisdom. In Ecclesiastes 7, the book changes. It turns. It becomes a little different. And what happens is in the rest of the book, there are... uh, there are proverbs that are speckled around. And Ecclesiastes 7, there's several proverbs. And when you think of a proverb, you think of things like uh, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, you think of these little proverbial sayings that, that are pithy little sayings that, tr- that state a, a general truth or, or some advice. So when we say birds of a feather flock together, we're telling our children, don't hang out with people who are the wrong crowd because then you're like them. Now, is that always true? No, because Jesus hung out with people who were nothing like him. And so, in general, it's true. We're basically saying bad character rubs off on people. And, and so they're generally true. And so what happens in Ecclesiastes is he starts to talk about uh, Proverbs and kind of given these little pithy statements of, 
uh, of wisdom. And now we read it and it's already on the screen and you've read it and you're thinking, this is the weirdest Mother's Day sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> a good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death, better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Ouch. So go out, enjoy your Mother's Day brunch. These are what scholars call tov proverbs. The Hebrew word tov means good. And you see that word translated in our uh, text as better. So gooder, right? (laughs) My mom would get mad at me for bad grammar. But these are tov proverbs, and you see it several times. Better than, better to, better to do that, better to, to have this, better this than that. And, and, and it's interesting because he is flipping things on its head that we would normally say. We would usually say it's better to go to a birthday party than to go to a funeral. It's better to go to the hospital when you just had a baby than to go to the funeral home when your loved one just died. I mean, that's how we would argue, right? That's what we would say. But here, Kohelet, the professor, the teacher, the wise one, says it's better to go to the funeral home than to the hospital when a baby's born. It's better to go to a funeral than to a birthday party. Now, honestly, in my opinion, this passage, better than almost any other than Ephesians 4, describes the job of a pastor. Because I believe, like, what Eugene Peterson has said over and over, that a pastor's job is to help people have a tov, a good death. And be prepared for that. And so this is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Isn't that weird? People often ask me, which do you rather do? Would you rather officiate a funeral or a wedding? And I, without hesitation, always say, I would much rather do a funeral much rather do a funeral. Do you know why? Aren't you asking why? Everybody's like, why? Because a bride and the mother of a bride are the most irrational human beings. In the face of the world. It's true. Because before I was a pastor, I was a custodian at a church. Okay, we want to rappel into the wedding. Give us a little heads up. This is like 30 minutes from now. I mean, and the reason they're so irrational, and you know this is tongue-in-cheek, right? Mostly. Um, They've been thinking about this day since she was born. Right? 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, 35 years of expectations have been building. Do you want to be the dude up in front of everybody on that one? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. You know, I, I always want to break out into the Princess Bride guy. Fairway! <laughs> That's what I always want to do. <laughs> do you know how few expectations people have on a funeral? 
you know how much time people have thought about their funeral? Do you know how much time people who are dying, like the doctor said, you're going to die. This will, this will end in death. Do you know how much time those people have thought about funerals? Very little. So to get up in front of a crowd at a funeral, which by the way, <laughs> awaits us all. As George Bernard, Bernard Shaw said, uh, the statistics of death are quite impressive. <laughs> it awaits us all. Why do we spend so little time thinking about it? <laughs> I mean, did you know that you can take <laughs> steps today to plan your funeral? You can. I mean, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be morbid or anything, but you can figure out what songs you want to have at it, who you want to speak at it, what you want said about you. You could write it all down. Now, whether people do it or not, you could still do it. And that's available to you. And by the way, when the guy Heaven is for Real was here, Pastor Burpo, when he was here in town, he said something that I thought was brilliant, and I'm going to re-say it because some of you weren't there that night. But if your loved ones don't know you're standing with God right now, you are doing a terrible disservice to your loved ones. Men, if your kids and your wife don't know what you believe about God, about Jesus Christ, and you haven't been man enough to talk to them about that, I mean, do you know how many people I have that are like, I just don't know. And I'm sitting there going, he was 85 when he died. How did this never come up? <clears throat> and sometimes these people I just want to slap. Not the people who are talking to me, but the people who died. Because it's up to me to tell them that they're fine? That is a lack of planning for what is going to happen to all of us. Why do we not think about it? You see, we live in a death-denying culture. We live in a culture that celebrates youth and new and young and improving. But the reality is, I know this about every single one of you, and some of you, I don't know anything about you, but one thing I know about every single one of you, you are dying. It started the day you were born. Every single one of you is dying. And Kohelet, the professor, tells us, just like St. Benedict, one of his instructions to monks in his order of monkery, <laughs> he told them, live every life with the fact of your death in your mind. You know, country songs help us with this sometimes. <laughs> Live like you're dying. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know country songs. I'm sorry. I, I listen to jazz. I know that's weird to people. But there's that big, you know, that big one about uh, live your life like you're dying. The weird thing is, when somebody dies, we do that, don't we? I was a custodian at Cherry Hills Community Church. Actually, I was a, 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 a building engineer there. And uh, <laughs> we removed lots of... I was a sanitation engineer there, too. And uh, <laughs> one of my jobs was to clean up preschool rooms 
and that was a lot of fun. A lot of dirty diapers. And uh, there's this old man, really nice guy. His name was Jim. And uh, the kids loved Jim, and everybody in church loved Jim. And, and uh, one day, it was about uh, three in the afternoon, uh, I just got into work, and um, we got a call that Jim had just fallen flat on the floor. And so uh, me and my boss, we ran to this preschool room, and they ushered all the little kids out. And me and my friend, we started in on CPR, on Jim. And, and my friend and I had actually been in the same CPR class several years before. And so he's doing compressions and I'm doing breathing. And by the way, if you've never done CPR or had it done to you, ribs crack and break. It's not pleasant. In fact, if I just fall down dead, just don't bother. <laughs> and we were working on him and, and the, it, we were doing such a good job that when the paramedics showed up, they had us keep going. Thanks, guys. And then they, they got their stuff out and um, they took him onto the ambulance and uh, we got a call back and they said, hey, if there was any chance of reviving him with CPR, it would have been, you would have done it because you guys did a great job with CPR. But the fact is he was dead before he hit the floor. Dead before he hit the floor. And I remember uh, just, you know, the rest of the day, no work got done at church. And we're, you know, there was pastors there. They're around death and dying people all the time. And it's interesting the, the, the reactions when that happens because all of a sudden everybody has this urge to, I gotta call my wife. Let her know I love her. I gotta call my kids and let them know I, I care. And, and all of a sudden, this crisis, this, this sudden death just puts everything into perspective for us. And it takes a crisis sometimes like that, like death, to awaken us to the fact that it's gonna happen to us someday and we just don't know how or when. But the interesting thing is we quickly forget. <laughs> don't we? I mean... Every time I went in that room, I remembered. But eventually, uh, you know, the, the stains that were on the carpet from what the EMTs did were cleaned up. The room went back to normal, and, and eventually there were kids in the room that didn't even know who Jim was. And eventually we go back to life as normal. And Kohala is saying, Keep your death in mind. Keep it before you because death and specifically your death is a window into your life. You see, did you see what he starts out with saying? He says a good name is better than fine perfume. And that's good for some of you moms to know because you're not getting that bottle of perfume today because you are married to an insensitive male like me, right? <laughs> but your name's good, so we got that going for you. I'm just totally kidding. Anyways, <laughs> a good name is better than fine perfume. It took me a while to figure out why does he start out with that and then he goes into and the day of death better than the day of birth. How, how's, what's the connection there? And it took me a while to figure it out. And then I realized when you die, your reputation is sealed. It's a done deal. There's no more changing. 
what people think about you, what your spouse thinks about you, what your kids think about you, what the community thinks about you. There's no more changing it. It is sealed, done, finished. But it's weird because we live our life thinking about little things. Oh man, I'm kind of hungry. The preacher keeps going on and on. What's for lunch? What am I going to do after lunch? Uh, that couch is sounding kind of nice. I might take a nap. I'm struggling to stay awake right now anyways. Besides, after I get that big meal, I want a nap. And we just live from the next anticipated thing to the next anticipated thing to the next anticipated thing. The next thing we look forward to to the next thing we look forward to. In fact, a lot of us work so that we can save up money so we can go on vacation to get away from work. Right? Mm-hmm. What? I say go on vacation all the time, people. Mm. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) But we go from one anticipated item, one looked forward to thing, to the next looked forward to thing. And when we experience death, or when we think about our death, then we start thinking about our reputation. And then we start to think about how will we be remembered. And guess what? It has nothing to do with what you have for lunch today. It has nothing to do... It might have something to do if you could stay awake or not at church, but it, it has nothing to do with that now. It has everything to do with who you loved, with whether you lived a wise life, whether you made good decisions or not, how you treated your spouse, how you treated your kids, how you treated your grandkids. For some of you, your great-grandkids. And that's what living a wise life is, according to Kohelet, is starting at the end and working your way back. Start at the end. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want people to say about you? What impact in this world do you want to have? And then start doing that now. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't have much time left. Can I change this? This is the grace part of the message. This is the good news part of the message. You see, there are a couple questions that come to mind when we think of death. One is, how how and when will it happen for many of us? The other is, what happens after we die? What happens to me after we die? And if you're thinking, I don't have much time left in this world, from what I've heard, it starts happening in our 60s continues in our 70s and 80s, and we start to think about death a little bit more, partly because we start to attend more funerals and we start to read the obituary with a little more interest. We start to read that page in the paper that lists people who died with a little more interest. When you're 20, you skip it because you're bulletproof. But eventually we start to pay a little bit more attention to those things. My parents are at that age where they're starting to attend more and more funerals. I can't tell you how often that I'm talking to my mom. She's like, yeah, we got to go to a funeral today. She's 64. And she starts to know more and more people who are passing. And some of you are in that stage of life. And you might be thinking, I don't have much time left. And my reputation, you're saying, will be sealed at the time of my death. And some of my rep, I'm not excited about. Some of my reputation, how I'm known, some of my, my, my relationships, some of, some of the, the stuff in my past I'm not proud of, some of the things that I've done, I don't want anybody to know about. 
here's the grace. God knows all that. Jesus knows all of that. But there is nothing you could ever do that would make him love you anymore. And there is nothing you have ever done that would make him love you any less. You see, God's disposition, his, his, his orientation to you, to me, is love. And you can either choose to, to, to receive that or reject it. And you can receive his love. And it is given to you in the person of Jesus Christ, who came as God's one and only son, unique person, the second person of the Trinity. He came, he was God in the flesh. He lived a sinless life, never made a mistake, never trespassed, never had a debt to pay, never sinned, never had to say, I'm sorry, never messed up, no regrets. Can you imagine? No, you can't. Because I've tried. He never once had to say, oops, I'm sorry. My bad. (laughs) I've told a lot of stories about Dave. Last week he brought me a plate of cookies because I don't always get to the back fast enough and so Dave was concerned. So he brought me some cookies and I ate a couple and I put the rest in my office and when I got back to my office after Sunday school all the cookies were gone but was, a note was left and it said, sorry dad, had to, my bad. <laughs> Jesus never had to leave a note like that for his dad. Jesus left the cookies alone, man. Or he ate them and just made more. I don't know. That was good. Um, he lived a sinless life. And if we place our faith in Christ, his sinless life is imputed to us. It is like God looks at us, but instead of seeing us, he sees Jesus in his holiness and his righteousness. And he sees us, but he sees us through Jesus. And he sees us through the cross of Christ. He sees us with our sins forgiven. And this is the good news because if you're thinking, I've got this reputation and I'm too old to change things. Yes, you are too old to change things. You are unable to change things, but Christ in you can change things. And you're never too old. You might be asking, what is, is there life after death? And quite frankly, there's only two answers to this question in our culture. Either there's nothing or there's everything. And much of our culture is saying there is nothing after death. And Kohelet, the professor, the teacher, comes against our culture and he says, you know what? If you came from nowhere and you're going nowhere, then just fess up and admit you're nowhere. You're nothing. You're meaningless. It's vain. It is all pointless. But try saying that at a funeral for a young child who was killed by a terrorist bomber in Boston. You know what? Hey, we're all going nowhere. Or another hideous lie. We're all going to the same place. Really? So that bomber and that kid are going to have to shake hands. Hang out together. Eat a meal together. 
Hitler and Jews will have to hang out and be friends with each other. Stalin and the millions that he killed in Russia will we'll all be hanging out together and there won't be any justice and there's nothing put right. It's just, hey, well, we all go to the same place. <clears throat> well, that sounds stupid. Why would we want that? I mean, if you really press them, they can name some people they don't even want to be with for the rest of their lives or even eternity. Why is that comforting that we all go to the same place? What's comforting is that there is a righteous judge, God, who gives our life meaning and purpose and everything that is done or said or thought, as the scriptures teach, will be judged. That's scary, but it's good news. Because like I said, if you've placed your hope in Christ, God sees Jesus not you. And it's also good news because for those who have done horrible, heinous things in life who do not accept Christ as Savior, God sees them and not Jesus. And he judges accordingly. You see, we believe that everybody's going to spend eternity somewhere. That it is everyone and everything. And some are choosing in this life to live life without God. Which is impossible. But they try. Because the very next breath you take was given to you by God. Mm-hmm. Your heartbeat keeps beating because God says it's gonna. It's all a gift from Him. But someday, on the other side of death, God will bless them with their desires. God will give them the desire of their heart. They get to live forever outside, apart from his presence, away from God. Isn't he nice, God? He'll give you what you want, even if it's life without him. And for those who are wanting God, who want to be part of his kingdom, who want to be part of what he is wanting to do, those who want God's presence in their life. And it's so fleeting, right? Because there's times we feel it and there's times we don't. And there's Sundays we feel it and there's Sundays we don't. And there's sermons we feel it and there's sermons we don't. And there's times and there's moments that it just breaks in. But it's fleeting. It always disappears. It's just like chasing after the wind it feels. But the scriptures tell us that if we chase Christ, we'll catch him. And for eternity, we'll be with him. Amen. And it won't be fleeting. And it'll always be there. You won't escape it. And you'll think that everything you want and everything you need and everything you crave and everything you desire in this life, you think, boy, heaven is where I get all that stuff. And guess what? My thought is when we get to heaven, we won't even want any of that because we have him. We'll have him, which is really what we want anyway. And that's why we need to live with our death in mind. 
Because like Kohelet says, are you chasing after the wind? Are you chasing after Christ? If you're chasing after the wind, that's what you'll get. Ever done that? I've chased a piece of paper that have been blown by the wind. I can't even catch that. Imagine catching the wind. But if you chase after Christ, if you chase God, if you chase Jesus, the scriptures tell you, you'll catch him. You'll get him. And eventually you'll have him forever. Moms, don't you want this for your kids? Don't you long that they would know Christ? That there would be a forever place that you will be with them forever? And there won't be any more boo-boos. And there won't be any more pain. And there won't be anything that can hurt your kids. And in fact, all of the pains and the struggles and the trials that they have gone through in this life, there will be an ultimate father Wipes away their tears. And makes it right. Don't you want that, moms, for your kids? Don't you want that for yourself? Chase Christ, not the wind. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for moms. Your thought and your invention. I have yet to meet one that's perfect. Not even Mary, mother of Jesus, was perfect. How weird would that have been? Thank you that the measure, the standard is not perfection. Thank you that uh, we can rest in who you've made us to be. That moms can rest in who you've made them to be. And they can cling to your grace and mercy. And through that, they can point their kids to your grace and mercy. When their kids see that mom really believes this stuff, it's what makes mom go. It's what makes mom have hope. It's what gives mom joy. Lord, I pray that every mom would know Christ. Beyond that, I pray that every mom would pursue Christ. Would pursue Christ above all things. And in so doing, ensure a good legacy for herself. Lord, I pray that each of us, fathers, husbands, moms, wives, kids, grandkids, that we would be mindful of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that it would change our lives. Help us to chase Christ, to quit chasing the wind. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Moms, chase Christ, not the wind. Dads, love your wife well and your kids well. Kids, 
honor mom. Always. Amen.